Hello and welcome to the next instalment of Bone Ditch by Ian Bird. As ever, if you'd like to read more, please visit our website, which is www.boneditch.wordpress.com. But now, without further ado, let's start with Gobbit 5, which is the second part of Chapter 2. And this Gobbit is called... I'd have to get drunk every night and talk about virility with some old grandmother who might be dressed up like a Christmas tree. It's important, now of all times, at the very start of the third millennium, that we take advantage and seize this new direction with both hands. The crowd took to their feet and applauded Sir Victor Mackenzie Gabardine. Michael nudged Belinda in the ribs, and we all know how much Sir Vix enjoys seizing a new direction. She stifled a laugh while maintaining eye contact with the superannuated millionaire peer media magnate at the podium. Just once, I would like to go to a sophisticated soiree with you and not have you throw a new direction in my face. They cheered and clapped as the CEO of the gaudy tabloid empire, Prospero Prince, descended from on high and marched with amiable but assertive authority through them all. Happy New Millennium, bellowed Sir Victor. Yes, he wanted to name these next thousand years after himself. The crowd moved happily into the ballroom and began consuming their champagne in earnest. Belinda and Michael sashayed along, drinking like the alternative was drowning, buoyed along by the babble. Oh, darling, doesn't it feel like this millennium will never end? I know, dear, I'll be glad when I'm dead, in all honesty. If it wasn't for my duties to my constituency, I'd have died years ago. Oh, the responsibilities of a parent to unruly children. Oh, exactly, sweetie, he always knows just what to say to those people. He's the Moju. I said to him, you're just flogging a dead whore, but he didn't listen. Belinda glared at the assembled from behind her beaming, friendly, open and available face. Disapproving, Belindalicious, Michael said. You're supposed to be in disguise. What I wouldn't give, said the 18-year-old, to be a venereal disease right about now. You are what happens when socialist meets social disease, I always said so. Belinda burped a champagne snarl. Don't you start talking like these toothed assholes. They had agreed at the start of the evening to get as drunk on Sir Victor's champagne as soon as was humanly possible, and in this sordid respect, the last night of the 1900s had been an unqualified success. The media magnate's masquerade was where everyone wanted to see in the year 2000, just so long as they had sloughed their consciences somewhere before landing on his private island and crossing his still more private threshold. Yes, Sir Vic lived on his own private island, like any self-respecting and every single other fucking person disrespecting multimillionaire, and when you landed on his sanctum sanctorum, you were expected to adopt his philosophies as if they were photogenic war orphans and you had a movie coming out in time for the Oscars. For every politician here tonight, there were three multimillionaires, and for every multimillionaire, there were three prostitutes. The drinks and canapes were being served by attractive and attentive celebrity lookalikes, and it took Michael a full ten minutes to realise that all the celebrities being impersonated had died in the 90s. By that time, he had already accepted glasses of champagne from Freddie Mercury and Kurt Cobain and exchanged telephone numbers with Princess Di. The taste may have been bad, but the wine was good. The band, to prove some bafflingly obtuse and insensitive point, were playing while wearing blindfolds. Michael noticed Belinda stealing stares at the harpist every couple of minutes. Michael thought of dear Stuart. Our little girl, all grown up. He checked his watch. The third millennium would be starting in two and a half hours. He was looking forward to stepping out of his skin and leaping into the new year. He was in his late twenties now and could already feel history creeping closer and closer to him each night. When you get older, he mused, you get slower and history gets bigger. He chatted with the famous pornographer, he flirted with the fund manager, he enjoyed a quick clinch with Quentin Crisp and sang one of her songs back to Dusty Springfield. 
Michael's enjoying himself. It would be okay. History would never think to look for him in the 21st century. He was just another sinner at Sir Vic's Mask of the Red Tops, and that felt just fine. Lana Turner herself sidled up to him, a far more fascinating for history to be wearing. You look thoughtful, Joe, she purred, passing him another glass. This isn't the night for thought. I've heard that, Michael said. I didn't know you died this decade. Summer of 95, Joe. Throat cancer. I'm so sorry. I was 74, she said. It could have been a lot worse. After all, you don't see Marilyn here. Well, quite. Lana Turner looked over his shoulder and smiled, something smoky and inviting. Marlene, Jean, come over and meet Joe. Jean Kelly and Marlene Dietrich were arm in arm, both dressed in tuxedos and wearing boaters. Darling, Marlene breathed, embracing first Turner, then Michael. Miss Dietrich? Michael was genuinely impressed. I'm, I'm actually a huge admirer. Thank you, darling. And who was that delicate flower I saw you arrive with? Have you been watching me, Miss Dietrich? I was watching her. A little young for you, isn't she? Michael grinned. I'm practically family. And that's what Caligula said. Marlena drank from his glass. This is a stupid thing to say, said Michael, but I cried when you died. Marlena Dietrich snorted a laugh. I'm worth more dead than alive, darling. Don't cry for me when I'm gone. Cry for me now. I think this young man would like you to seduce him, Marlene, said Lana Turner. Oh, he's not my type, are you, darling? You're a gentleman. You know what they say about gentlemen, said Lana Turner. A gentleman is simply a patient wolf. Is that true, Marlene said. Are you a wolf? Michael couldn't think of a thing to say. Gene Kelly put his arm around his shoulder and whispered into his ear. I think there are some people here who aren't convinced by your bona fides, Joe. He gestured towards two slightly older, more thick-set men by the ballroom entrance. Gene Kelly was right. They seemed to be watching him closely. One had coarse black hair and a clenched jaw full of small, sad, ugly teeth. The other was an overweight, very still clown. Is that... Mrs West and Wayne Gacy are a couple of suspicious minds. I've got to say, Joe, try to say downwind of them, perhaps. No, Jean. Maybe our gentleman has rarefied tastes. Should we introduce him to Geoffrey instead? Michael shrugged himself free of the three of them, suddenly feeling exposed. Don't be scared, Joe, said Lana Turner. None of us are dead. It's just an imitation of life. He practically jumped out of his skin when the arms suddenly reached around him and hugged. Michael, Belinda said. Guilty conscience? Hello, my dear. Marlene spun her out from behind Michael and smiled, her eyes sharpening like knives. Miss Dietrich, I was a huge fan. Say, did you know Madonna? Jean Kelly laughed and Belinda broke free. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I've someone you've got to meet, Michael. Come on. She dragged him away. Michael couldn't resist looking back over his shoulder. The three of them watched him go, alternately amused and hungry. I think they knew what was going on, Michael said. Everyone here is dead, said Belinda. Even the guests are dead. They don't know a thing. Have you seen the time? He checked his watch. Three minutes to midnight. Where did the night go? I know, it's all so swellagant. And speaking of swellagants, look. Belinda was gesturing towards the blonde they had been searching for all night, now stood between Frank Sinatra, Carlos Castaneda and Timothy Leary. The four of them were laughing jaggedly, drinking hard liquor and smoking like crematoria. Great night, right, baby? said a bland-faced, shifty old American with tiny eyes, suddenly standing between the two of them. He stared at Belinda and ignored Michael entirely. Fuck off, said Belinda. The American hissed, then stepped back and vanished into the crowd. Who was that? Michael asked. I think that was fucking James Earl Ray. She looked suddenly pale. This place is starting to get to me. Are you ready? Michael nodded. It was time. Everyone started counting down to the end of history. This was it. Now or never. Literally. 
Michael found his place. The crowd reached zero. Everyone burst into applause and shrieks of laughter. The year 2000. The party was over. It was all time to meet up. And then, suddenly, everything burst into darkness. The music stopped as if decapitated. The lights died a death and the screaming started. Out the windows, in the darkness, off in the distance, there was a terrible explosion. The fuck? Some kind of joke. Terrorists? Oh my god, is it the Y2K bug? The Y bug! The guests checked their mobile phones, but none of them could get a signal. The lights wouldn't return. The screaming continued. Everyone was gasping about carnivorous computer bugs. Everyone was trying to get out of the building. Everyone was suddenly terrified by the prospect of being inside this modernistic building, now laid low by two digits stroking in the wrong place. Mum? Belinda was suddenly in character. She was there, suddenly in front of the blonde. Yes? Mr. Mask, my name is Sarah Autrejour, and this is my colleague, Den Bone. We work for Sir Victor. Will you come with us, please? We have instructions to keep you safe. What? What? We're bodyguards, Mr. Mask, and it's our job to keep you safe. Mom, you need to come with us right now. Michael smiled winningly, and the young blonde smiled back, nervously, but wanting to be convinced. Mr. Mask, said Michael, I'm a huge fan, by the way, but there's nothing to be afraid of. Sir Victor prepared for all of this. You're perfectly safe. He? He prepared? Of course, he anticipated this might happen. What, what is happening? Michael smiled. He'd been perfecting it for 20 years. It's not the end of the world. Not if we go now. The three of them, Michael, Belinda and Mr Mask, dashed out of the ballroom, but deeper into the house, not out of it. Mr Mask, Sir Victor told us that in this eventuality we were to ensure that you got to what he said was the jackpot. He said you would know what that means. Oh my God, is that serious? They rushed down the corridors of Sphix's mansion. Mr. Mask didn't realise it, but she was leading the way. She was holding their hands as she ran. What was it? Why was everyone so terrified? This was something that Belinda was better at talking about. It's a technical malfunction, but it's affecting everything. So Victor had anticipated this might happen and had some contingencies put in place. What are they all talking about? The why bug? Pretty much every computer, as far as we can tell, has just either crashed or gone offline. The lights, aren't, the lights aren't only out here, they're out everywhere. The world has just gone dark and anything that did what it did because a computer told it to is now on its own. Are we in danger? This was Michael's big moment. He looked at Belinda and thought about Stuart dying on the pavement. Yes, we're in danger. Belinda tried to look reassuring. We need to get you somewhere safe until the powers that be can put it all back together again. We need to be sure you have the funds and the means to get to the refuge. Then Sir Victor can be reassured that you are safe while he helps put the lights back on. OK, OK, I know where to go. Everyone knew that Dandelion Damask was the reason why Sir Victor hadn't shut up shop and surrendered to the siren call of his impossible bank account years before. He was ancient and had crushed all his enemies a year before. This very island was intended to be his geologically scaled sarcophagus, his final statement on a world he'd done his very best to turn into the kind of thing you should only ever visit sparingly. But then he had fallen for Mr. Mask, and suddenly there were still worlds to conquer after all. Everyone knew that this venal, cynical, universal threat of a man had been a cannibal all his life. They had just credited him with good taste and tried to remain downwind. Now, with this sweet young thing between his teeth, he had developed a fresh enthusiasm for the living and would remain on the down and low, if not the straight and narrow. There was a horrible colour in his cheeks once more and they all had to make way for him. Himself, also a lifelong fornicator with low self-esteem, Michael appreciated that it was so much easier to fuck someone who insisted on displaying their nerve endings in front of you. Hence their plan. He keeps four and a half million pounds worth of Krugerrands in the safe in his office, said Damask. That's his jackpot. He said that it was important that I knew what to do if, if, he were ever, if we were ever judged. 
Belinda nodded. Mr. Mask, this isn't about him. This is about getting you the resources you need and then getting you to safety. Is this really happening? asked the young woman. Michael held back and pointed out through the massive window that peered through the midnight to the black shore off in the distance. Do you hear that? Michael asked. What? They all heard it, screaming. Endless screaming from the mainland. I think a lot of people have been waiting for everything to go wrong, Michael said, and are taking their chances now that we're all in the same dark. Mr Mask looked terrified. She was 22 years old. She'd always known that the world would end in her lifetime. That was how much history she didn't know. The safe is in his study. She pointed at the double doors just behind them. She twisted the enormous handles and the grotesque mahogany coffin lids that were masquerading as elegant furnishings fell open like a sinkhole in a cemetery. The explosives stashed in the old freak's generator room, the massive speaker system and the screaming soundtrack lashed to the boy in the bay, the inevitable collapse of the mobile phone networks out here on an island in the middle of nowhere at the busiest time recorded ever by the industry. Yes, with a little cynicism and a little invention, Michael and Belinda were going to take this hideous freak for a fortune and disappear into the third millennium, riding the coattails of a far-fetched disaster story to financial security forever. Belinda's werewolf imagination, Michael's urge to provide for his dead boyfriend's only child, and a rabid disrespect for the respectable, who actually believed that love was all you needed. But Sir Victor's study wasn't empty. Like everywhere on the island, the roost room was post-apocalyptic dark, but tentatively invading the shadows were shy glimmers from the fireplace. In the half-glow, the three of them could just about make out a noose, hanging. In fact, now they looked closer, there were several nooses, and somehow, beneath them, a shattered gallows, ingrown and mutated, strung through the nooses and strapped across the gallows, was a naked body. The gallows should have been dangling the body, but instead this corrupted structure was twisting it, bending the nude like an origami. It was an inverted lynching. Someone was hung from hell up into the world. Threaded through thin loops of cord or perhaps rubber hosing, limbs and a throat were held tight, buckled down on the erect struts of the wooden skeleton. The body was braced and shackled, but every muscle was taut like the strings of a musical instrument. It was held in suspense, prone and tumescent, profane and tuned like a pitched fork. The area in which the body was hung like spoiled food had a sickly acrid tang, like sweat and cum, but it was beautiful nevertheless. Veins didn't bulge in the body, rather they seemed like steel wire, elevated by furious blood flow up out of the fat and flesh. Pallid meat had a bruised sheen, blue like storm clouds, but blooded with the luminous crimson of a sunset. Eyes were bulging opalescent blanks, pearl drops of semen hanging in a face that was distended and contorted, as if a freakish snouted mask had been mistakenly worn beneath the skin. The body's hard breathing was like a saw, rusted iron in the air, carving mechanically and blindly in the same dark as the rest of them. It was a man's body, they could tell from its bulk and its erection. Eyes blind through pain and suspense, it must have known that they were there from their smell, because now it was snorting and twisting itself even further. The gallows were holding it precisely, but still it squirmed, looking for help, looking for admiration. Vic! Recognising her lover and benefactor, Dandelion suddenly rushed forward and embraced the thing in the trap. It groaned under her touch. The extra pressure of even this tiny creature was excruciating on the excoriated specimen, crucified by something with limited interest in simple perpendicular torture. This was a post-Euclidean crucifix, a nest of impossible angles to break indestructible angels. Dandy, the thing whispered, 
dandy. Tears in her eyes, dandelions shot and a fronted glare back at Belinda and Michael. Don't just stand there, help me get him free. Michael was in shock, but suddenly flashed on an image from a story told him years before. A crowd of people standing at a car wreck, transfixed by someone else's gaudy pain. And only one man, his old lost lover, trying to help. Trying to help had ruined Dove Kittery, probably forever, Michael remembered. But Michael had loved that silly, stuck-up man and his foolish, thwarted example. He stepped towards the gallows, but then stopped when Belinda suddenly put her hand on his shoulder. Michael, Belinda said, and Michael knew that she was scared because she was using his real name. Look. In those same shadows now being shared by everyone on the island, something was moving, unfolding itself. It was slight, whatever it was, and should not have been imposing, but even these incremental incursions into their space seized his imagination and his breath, and he leapt back. Belinda did the same thing, unable to breathe, as if choked by the same exquisite garrot as Sir Victor. They stared as the slight shadow within the shadow skittered somewhat slightly into second sight and looked back at them. It, she, was wearing a long dress a long and elegant black ball gown, and it had long black hair that rolled down across where its face should have been. The hair, like the gown, was perfectly prepared, thick and shining. It fell like armour across the thing, disguising everything except the fact that the creature that wore it was nothing human. It must have been human. Of course it was human. It was a woman, a young woman, painfully thin, like the obituary of a forgotten lover. The only light in the room was coming from the fireplace at the end of the room. Into that light slid the thing. It was bone-white and agonisingly thin. Her smile was carved from ear to ear, an ivory scab scalpel wound that didn't end, and its eyes were deep black pits that somehow reflected the sparks from the fire. She was peering at the three of them, and its already endless grin was even now growing, becoming sharper and more hungry. Her long fingers fell across the victor's throat, stroking the shiny black leather strap that was choking him. The strap, Michael noticed, was buckled with a silver padlock. Then those ivory teeth in the thing's smile parted and the woman smoked. I smell Elliot on you. The spell was broken. Michael grabbed Belinda and ran from the room, dragging her with him. They ran. They didn't stop running. Forget the money. Forget the plan. Just get off this fucking island. But the screaming... At first Michael thought it was their stash sound system, but only at first. Now, hearing screams for real, their little pre-recorded pantomime sounded like a children's game. This, this was screaming. It was coming from the ballroom. As they ran by the open doors they had just escaped with Dandelion, Michael hesitated and looked in. Fires had been started in the minute and a half since Michael had left the room, and by the light of those flames, hell was clearly illuminated. The celebrities, the dead celebrities, the lookalikes who had been serving them drinks and flirting with them all night. They had turned. They were fighting over the guests, tearing at them, biting and gouging and shrieking with joy as they ripped the rich and the fanciful millionaires and politicians and great and good to pieces. Some dowager, desperate to describe in meticulous detail her late husband's investment portfolio, was now slumped like meat in front of Michael, her pockets and her ribcage both scraped empty. Two blonde masters of the universe, one a debutante, member of parliament and accomplished junkie, the other an Olympic-level drug dealer and amateur pimp, were being clubbed to death like baby seals with bits of Chippendale furniture wielded by Stanley Kubrick and Ernie Wise. Kubrick was showing Wise how to make each blow count, 
insisting he repeat his strikes over and over again until he got it right. And Michael noticed crazily that, matted as it was with sticky blood, the dead comedian's weapon was a short, fat, hairy chair leg. Michael's eyes suddenly met Gene Kelly's, still wearing his boater but now splashing and dancing in gore. Why is each new task a trifle to do? Because I am living a life full of you. Gene genially tipped his hat to Michael, while behind him rushed Cesar Romero and Telly Savalas, gasping with laughter as they both roared closer. Michael! Michael! Belinda dragged him away, and they ran as fast as they could, racing, racing faster and faster down to the docks. Their dinghy, their little dinghy, surely it would still be there. The dead maniacs careered towards them, but nothing was going to stop Michael and Belinda now. The couple were running a lot faster than the assorted mutilated millionaires and Sybarites and Corinthians. They only had to outrun the rest. Down across the island they fled, just as the house behind them burst into flames. One of the dead celebrities had me clearly managed an explosion. Their time was now up. The future wasn't going to accept them after all. There, Belinda pointed as she shrieked. Down by the short, stubby jetty was a tiny boat. Big enough, big enough. Michael untied it, his fingers fumbling, fingers fumbling over the rope as DeForest Kelly and George Peppard dashed closer and closer. He suddenly couldn't stop himself from staring at these killers. He'd grown up watching the two of them on television. He remembered lying on the living room carpet, his dad up above him on the sofa, laughing at the shows, laughing along with him, teaching him what was funny, what was enjoyable, teaching him how to find these things funny and warm and everyday and enjoyable. Were these parts of his past really dead? Were they really now murderous impulses, desperate to crush and eviscerate him? Those fools, the stupid bloody fools. Michael recognised their sin, those guests, because he had shared it, hadn't he? It wasn't just the end of the year, or the end of the decade, or the century, or even the millennium. It was the turning of what was into what would be, a glorious new direction. And all of them there at the party had wanted to seize that same escape route and escape from the past into the last place that past would look, off into the future. Lustful cowardice. But then seasoned with blind insult, they had brought along the dead to serve them drinks and watch them make their getaway. No wonder the dead had turned. Michael! He snapped back to the present and finally finished untying the knot. The boat was loose and they both leapt into it. He pushed the boat into the current with a gnaw and nature pulled them away. The dead actors shrieked at them from the shore, thwarted and starving. It was five minutes into the new millennium and Belinda sat opposite Michael in the dark. Terrorists? suggested Belinda desperately. The Y-bug, Michael said. It was as good an excuse as any. They passed the boy that they had rigged with the speaker and the timer earlier on. It wasn't until they drifted by the boy that they realised they'd been listening to those pantomime screams all along, along with all the other horrors on the island. Behind them on that island, it blazed. Nothing would be left in the morning, Michael knew. Belinda was still and quiet. He felt an uncontrollable savage empathy for her just then. Thinking of his father back there had reminded him of her dad, dead now just over a year, hit by a truck, killed instantly. That had been the moment that had changed Belinda. Well, of course it had. She would change back eventually, he guessed, or change into something else, new and unpredictable. But he missed that little girl who had used to play with him when she had visited at weekends. They had teamed up on Stuart, and Michael knew that Stuart had enjoyed that. Hit by a truck. HGV positive, he had joked at the funeral, but no one had laughed. He reached out and held Belinda's hand. She squeezed it hard. He'd stay with her while she changed. Perhaps schemes like this one wouldn't have been what Stuart would have wanted for his little girl, but he would have appreciated the passion and the imagination. No, he wouldn't.
Michael would stay with her anyway. Meanwhile, her fingers entwined his, and her ivy tattoo, permanent now, threaded down from her throat to her sleeve, along her fingers, crossed over onto his hand, and unfurled up his arm and across his chest. The eyes hanging from the vine saw everything. Michael knew that he had seen Stuart at the party, serving drinks with the rest. Sitting in the boat now, he knew it for a fact. He didn't know what to think about that realisation, but he resolved not to tell Belinda. The thing in the study had looked at him and spoken to him. I smell Elliot on you. He thought about Elliot Rent for the first time in years. The Y-bug. In front of them was the shoreline. The coast was black and silent. When they landed on shore, would the world still be ended? Or would the future be waiting? Thank you for listening. To be continued.